on this episode of the LP, Literature in Practice. I wrote this book for folks who really want to do the work. You are dealing with multiple children all at once. Classrooms are cultural exchange sites. I might have a different belief system about one period versus another period, and we don't give them any relief. Peace LP collectors, welcome to a new season of the LP Literature in Practice, where we take a look at texts and practices that encourage grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful instruction. A new season means new books, new insights, new listeners, and new opportunities to engage with us, so stay tuned. What will remain true are authentic conversations with folks that can help us improve the education profession. And unfortunately, another truth that remains in the United States is that teaching is one of the most underappreciated professions in the country, financially and intellectually, as teachers are often cut out of decisions about what to teach and how to teach on a larger scale. As we advocate to reclaim the power taken, it's important to analyze the power given, which can still have a serious impact on the quality of instruction in classrooms. I got a chance to build with Dr. Tangi Reed Marshall and discuss her book, Understanding Your Instructional Power, Curriculum and Language Decisions to Support Each Student. Join us as we discuss the power overlooked within a profession undervalued and how it can be used to provide grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful instruction. This is the LP. Welcome folks and fam of all walks and talks to the LP podcast, Literature and Practice. This episode's guest is most certainly a special one. We have none other than Dr. Tangi Reed Marshall, who wrote the book, Understanding Your Instructional Power, Curriculum and Language Decisions to Support Each Student. Dr. Marshall is the director of P12 Practice at the Education Trust. She's also the principal consultant for Liaison Educational Partners. And overall, she spent over two decades of experience in the field of education, advocating for all things grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. She's also a triathlete and a proud member of what sorority, Dr. Marshall? The only one that matters, <laughs> Delta Sigma Theta Incorporated. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Tangie Reed Marshall, how are you, ma'am? I am very well and super excited to join you for what I know is going to be a great discussion. Yeah, no, I'm definitely looking forward to this one. Let's get started. You know, we always ask all our guests from the beginning, what was your favorite text as a kid? What was your favorite as an adolescent? And what was your favorite as an adult? As a child, when shoes eat socks. As an adolescent, the scarlet letter. And as an adult, there are just too many to name. <laughs> Can you explain to me at least what When Shoes Eat Socks is about? Because that, that one's not familiar to me. Yes. Yeah. When I was younger, when my dad was alive, we had to do book reports over the summer. And we went to the library, living in the Bronx, went to the library, and I found this book. And what was lovely about the book is the characters were black. Oh, wow. This book with this kid, every time he would go out and he would tie his shoes, but he would come back and his socks would be falling down into his shoe. And he kept saying, my shoes are eating my socks. And what they found out was that he wasn't tying his shoes tightly mm. enough so that he um, could, you know, not have his socks fall down in his shoes. 
But let's talk about another book real quick, a book called Understanding Your Instructional Power. Who is your text designed for? Yeah, I think this text, when I wrote it, I wrote this text first with teachers in mind, but I wrote it with any educator at any level who is looking around the environment in which they are doing this thing we call teaching and noticing something is off. I wrote it for the teachers who keep saying they want to do the work about learning who they are and being culture responsive and being relevant, but are doing it at a service level. And so I wrote this book for folks who really want to do the work and get down into the intersections of who they are as a human, how they grew up, how they understood society in a a lot of different ways, and how they understood the impact of their schooling on how they make decisions in classrooms. Mm. So that's who I wrote this for. Like what are three action steps you would like folks to take based upon the info that they read in the book? I would like them to get into community with their colleagues, Mm. get into a place where they are doing deep level work. And then I'd like to join them in the partnership and have them really, you know, work with me to help them understand the impact of what they're doing. This is different work. I don't want to say it's new. The ideas about power in education in classrooms has been around since the 60s. So this is not new, but there has been a gap in the conversation about it in a very technical way because power is primarily discussed around behavior management. And so most times when you're hearing this idea about power in classrooms, it's always about teachers controlling behavior and teachers managing behavior. I wanted people to think about power in a broader, deeper way, because that is a very real thing that happens where teachers are controlling educational access and academic access by the very decisions they make. If you, if you can, for teachers out there, leaders out there who may deal with that kind of dynamic in a similar way, can you describe the balanced relationship between classroom management and classroom instruction from the lens of what you offer in this book? Yeah. And so the one thing I'll say is you have to manage everything. We love buckets and binaries. Yeah. And what I want people to do with this book is get past the buckets and binaries and really dig into the structural dynamics of learning. You manage all of it, right? So you manage the dynamic of the ways in which the younger humans than you interact with you and each other. Mm. And then you manage how you deliver the learning mechanism or or the, the content you're managing the delivery of content and the degree to which you can quickly understand yourself first and first, primarily. The idea that we have to either manage instruction or either manage behavior is categorically false. And that's part of the problem. So the balance is how do we break down that bucket and the binary and the silo between instruction and management as though those two operate separately? We tend to think teachers are good at one or the other simply because we keep this binary and bucket thing going. They lean into how good they are in managing and controlling young human behavior. 
as though that's the man, that, that's the goal of school, right? So let me just get all the little young humans in a room and control them to death, right? You got to know that there isn't one or the other. Part of what makes teaching in classrooms so dynamic is because you really are constantly managing everything. <clears throat> Teachers make thousands of decisions every day. Right. And you must understand deeply the relationship between your ability to know who you are, know who your students are, know your content. And by knowing you and your students, you can put in place with them as partners the right kinds of mechanisms to help the flow of academic learning move forward. Yeah. You got to have skill, will, a process, and conditions. Yeah. When you were talking about that, I thought about how, like, I was pushed into the binary in some regards, uh, just by virtue of being in the profession and reading your dimensions. Is it possible to be in multiple dimensions of instructional power? I literally have a case study of my own learning about myself. I had an identity of who I was as a teacher. You know, I wore a suit every day to school. You know, I walked New York Walker every day in a building teaching fifth graders and sixth graders. And my class was the most rigorous academically. My class was known in the building as being, you know, okay, if you got Miss Marshall, then you better bring all your Wheaties because you're going to do the work, right? And I was in that persona and I had a young lady and I wish I could find her. I know her name. I can see her face. I know where she sat in my room. She got a 100 on one of my tests. And I was like, absolutely not. No one's getting 100 on me, right? Because we do that. Like we do that, right? And luckily this was a very, you know, early on in my mm -hmm. career. And I tell you, I looked and looked and looked and looked and looked in her paper to find something and I found yeah. it. And it was such a small thing, but it saved my persona mm -hmm. of myself. And so when you are power protecting, you are really saving who you see yourself mm -hmm. as. I saw the light go out of her eyes when she got her paper back. She knew she had studied, she knew it. You know what I mean? She knew it and it was me pushing her to perfection because of me and not for her. I had nearly unfettered autonomy. And people think, oh, it's such a great thing. It is not always a great thing because it, it, it comes with this inborn inequities. And then if I can choose what I wanna teach, I might have a different belief system about one period versus another period. Your testimony right now is really getting to me. In the book, you talk about another kind of spectrum. You said you had all the autonomy, but then there's, you know, restricted autonomy, right? Um, where you're basically mm -hmm. like script reading, right? Like you were doing this dogmatically, extreme, you know, fidelity. What would you say to a teacher who believes they have no instructional power because they're under that kind of situation where they're told to do it step by step, script for script, letter for letter. I would ask them a question. And my question would be, inside the scripts that you have to read, who was the child you didn't call on when their hand was raised? Mm. 
That's what I want to know about. I want to know about who the child you did not call on. I want you to think about the child who asked to go to the bathroom and you said no to, but the child right behind them, you said yes to. And I want you thinking about how you graded one child's work versus another child's work. And were you absolutely grading them the same as you would if you didn't know who their names were, right? Because I can script all day long, but someone's going to shut the door. Unless you're going to give multiple choice as your only method of learning about student learning, anytime you give a non-multiple choice, your power is going to show up on the page. Mm -hmm. It's going to show up in the questions you ask. It's going to show up in the way you evaluate students. It's going to show up in who gets feedback and who does not get feedback and the type and the amount. So yeah, you might have a scripted curriculum that you have to follow lockstep. And when they walk into yours and out of another, they want to hear you completing sentences, but you're still going to exercise your autonomy and your instructional power in other places and other ways. And sometimes you might be more protective in other ways, right? Because you want to hold on to your own control. But if you are if you have unfettered curricular autonomy, you might be holding on to the fact that you can do what you want. Instructional power shows up. I don't care how much autonomy in terms of the curriculum you have or don't have, because you are in our country, the sovereign leader of your classroom, mm -hmm. there you go. What would you say are the top three instructional choices that reflect a teacher that is protecting the system? If you are overcorrecting their speech patterns, if you are incessant about them, you know, walking in straight, single, silent lines, which only happens in prison. If you are saying things like, well, we have to help these kids get ready for the outside world. Therefore, we're going to use draconian measures because we believe that's what they need. Those things like clap if I say X, Y, Z or heavily demerited systems. Those are protecting systems. Also, the holding of intellectual upward mobility. Mm -hmm. And by upward mobility intellectually, I mean, if you have tracking in schools, if students are quote unquote identified as gifted, but they're identified very early in life, but they don't have a chance that someone else who wasn't identified, who came into a system later, they don't have an opportunity to be identified as quote unquote gifted and they're stuck in a quote unquote track when it's, there's evidence that they can move and do more work. So this kind of constraining of intellectual upward mobility and then these rules, right? These incessant rules without flexibility. Think about it. If you are a principal and you have teachers who are supposed to turn their grades in on time, the grades are due, you know, on June 20th, at, at noon. If a teacher turns that grade in at June 20th at one o'clock, that teacher's late. Right. Now, if that was a kid, a teacher might be advocating to give the kid a zero. I had to reassess why I was doing what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And it couldn't just be to get them ready for the real world. So that's if a teacher is trying to protect the system. What would you say are the top three instructional choices that reflect a teacher that's trying to protect their position within that system? I would say what they would do 
is they would use language in ways that disenfranchise the identity of children. They would use language that communicates a me versus them ideology. Had a teacher say that to me. Um, well, they know that they won't overtake me. I was like, overtake you? Okay. <laughs> that was odd, but all right. <laughs> that was her thinking. You know, insisting on this monodirectional instruction yeah. that centers the adult. You know, we like to say stays on a stage and all like that, but it is monodirectional that centers the the onset of conversation, the onset of learning, the access to learning from peers, despite what research and evidence has shown to be what is important for students to really grasp concepts. And then doing some of what we do for the system, right? Not really inviting students in to be co-constructors of their learning space. And you can, you can do that with young kids. You know, you just do it in a in a different way, but you help them see themselves as part of the process. And if you are a teacher who's protecting yourself and protecting the system, you're gonna hold back on, you know, I would say like pulling the veil back and opening the curtain, right? right? Like we're like we're looking in Oz now, right? We're like we don't want to see Oz. Um, and so we do a lot of curtain calling and a lot of curtain hiding behind so that students don't know what's really going on. So yeah, they, they do a lot of the same, but there's a particularity of language that happens at the classroom level that really directs how students know whether or not their teacher in, is inviting them into the process. And, whether, and if that teacher is inviting everybody in the right. process or some kids in the process, yeah. right? And they know it, they know it quickly, they nail it. They nail it. They know it. You know, they have a little antenna that really, really picks up on the differentials. Um, one, particularly students of color who live in high stress environments, body language is their survival mechanism. Right. And so they've got to be able to watch or they have to watch the body language and cues and pick up cues to understand what's going to be safe for me here. You know, am I safe here? you know, in, in ways that students who don't live in high stress areas don't have to worry about. Yeah. Speaking of uh, safety, in the book, you also talk about stereotype threat, right? And for those who don't know, and Dr. Marshall, correct me if I'm missing the piece, but stereotype threat is basically when students out of fear or out of legit harm being happening, or both, uh, display the actions associated with stereotypes about their identity. The black male student um, is in an environment where, like what you just said, in terms of like, feels like they're not really being called on, it's not a lot expected of them. When it does come time for them to actually learn and perform, uh, that fear and being in that kind of environment may allow them to feel comfortable and just acting out in stereotypes around black males and learning, like not wanting to learn, not caring about learning, et cetera, et cetera. Um, how does that relate to curriculum and teachers' instructional choices? Like, what, 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 what is the relationship between stereotype threat, curriculum, and teachers' instructional choices? I think the, the threat comes, one, when the adults don't 
real don't don't name that they have that they believe the stereotypes so it create that that's the condition remember i said skill will process condition the condition is an unwillingness to name your belief in the um stereotypes you hold and so when you when you do that the child is reacting to how they know you feel about them, even though you say the opposite. And so they are threatened by that. So they lean into it sort of as saving face and, and, and a feeling of defeatism. You know, I'm not going to be successful here. So why bother? So they, 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 they don't understand the mechanisms that are happening because how old are they? They're not adults. <laughs> so since they're not adults, they don't really understand the underlying self. They, they, they walk in the self-esteem, you know, challenges created by a teacher who is on, on that teacher who will not name their stereotypes about students, stu certain students, but they are also reacting to the sense of I don't have anybody who's going to support me here and I don't know how to support myself here. And so the threat becomes, um, I feel threatened. And whereas an adult, we have learned how to overcome that. They don't know that yet. You know, it's a very rare young person whose mind is tight. It is developed enough where they don't have to, where they can overcome that on their own. And so the, the relationship then is, I am making decisions out of my core beliefs, not my stated beliefs, mm. right? So my core beliefs will always override the words I say, and I create a disenfranchising protective environment where students cannot thrive. And I make curricular, I sometimes make curricular decisions, but I absolutely make the instructional decisions that bring to bear the stereotype that I have put in place in my room. So I am creating the conditions this, and, and they become self-fulfilling prophecies. So if I believe that, you know, black girls are sassy and I grew up believing that young girls should behave in a certain way, my stereotype, my belief system is going to then intersect with my decision about the behavior, right? How I'm going to respond to the behavior. And I might afford access to the curriculum, or I will probably constrain it by not calling on the child, silencing the child, or punishing the child in lots of different ways. So the stereotype threat is going to be wound up in the behaviors I exhibit based upon my undealt with unnamed negative stereotypes and over stereotyping on the positive side for other groups. Teaching is so complicated. <laughs> you said it right. It is for real rocket science because you are dealing with multiple children all at once. It's not tutoring. Teaching is not tutoring, it's not one-on-one. -on -one. No. Classrooms are cultural exchange sites. Mm. The minute two people are connecting with each other, 
culture is starting. It's taxing on the brain. The circuitry in the brain is like a yeah. fire when you have all those many of people to manage and process with. The burnout rate for teachers is 44%, higher than any other job force. And what we have to remember is we are asking people who went to school to learn how to do one thing, mm -hmm. right? We're asking them to do things they're not trained for. Yeah. And the more we keep asking them to do the things they're not trained to do, they have less bandwidth intellectually and socially and economically and relationally to do that which they are trained to do. So, you know, and, and you've heard me say this as well. Education is notoriously additive. Mm -hmm. We subtract nothing, right? And we keep adding to teachers' plates and we don't give them any relief. You cannot keep expecting them to do more of a job they're not trained for and then penalize them for not doing well the thing that they are trained for, but they don't have space to do it because you keep asking them to do things they're not trained for. Dr. Marshall, thank you for talking with us about your book and thank you for all the research uh, in the book and outside the book um, that you do in your regular work and in all the keynotes and all the ways I've seen you lead learning uh, over the uh, past several years. I'm very, very grateful for it. Uh, can you do us all a favor and share a final quote from the book that you would like to close us out with? This is actually the final quote in the book. It's the starting quote of chapter eight and it's by Stephen King. And it says, you can, you should. And if you're brave enough to start, you will. This spin of the LP with Dr. Tangy Reed Marshall left me with a few things to reflect on and process. And I often reflect process through poetry. So during this season, I'll be exercising that practice more often. In this profession, buckets and binaries are our primary dietary consumptions, yet management and instruction are integrated functions. It's vulnerability and expertise. It's skill, will, processes, and conditions that reduce frictions, produce traditions of true depictions of liberatory instructional decisions, despite the temptations of autonomy and despite the shackles of restrictions. So let's continue to huddle together for system retorts and rebuttals while avoiding the avoidance of our subtle instructional struggles. Thank you, Dr. Marshall, for your time and your book, Understanding Your Instructional Power. If you'd like to get more info on this episode's author, the featured text, and how you can apply your newly acquired knowledge in your profession, we got you. Check us out on the LP website, at unboundedorg forward slash LP. You can also check us out on social media. Find us on LinkedIn or Facebook, or you can find us on Instagram at Lit in Practice Pod or Twitter on Unbounded the LP. On your social or podcast platform, please leave a review and let us know who you'd like for us to interview next. This is Brandon White. Thanks for listening to the LP. Literature in Practice, where we take a look at texts and practices that encourages student instruction to become more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. Peace and progress.